This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. We have much more ways to understand each other now, technological-wise. But do you think we understand each other better now? A little better, but not a lot better. People in America still have this fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned image of China. They have this image of lots and lots of bicycles, low buildings, old buildings, probably covered in a layer of pollution. And this is not quite the picture in our world that some people like to build walls and others like to build bridges. And there's too much wall building and not enough bridge building. And so I believe that China is making a good faith effort to build bridges. How long does it take for a person to learn about a foreign country? One year, 10 years, or even more? An American citizen who first heard of China on his shortwave radio in the 1950s has been living and working in Beijing for more than 15 years. He says he's still growing from his Chinese experience. Hello and welcome. I'm Manling in Beijing. In last week's program, Harvey Zoding, a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former legal advisor in the Carter administration, shared some of his stories about China. Today, Harvey and I continue our dialogue, this time talking about communication. About 60 years ago, when Harvey was a teenager, the way he got to know about the outside world was on his shortwave radio. Now, living in China for more than 15 years, he's a great user of WeChat, which is the most popular and convenient way to communicate with other people in China. Today, you are using WeChat, me using WeChat. We hear our programs on social platforms, right? And from the little box, the metal one or wooden one we call, there's a little mini people in it, you know, telling us something. Until today that you are like be surrounded all the time. You can listen to programs anytime we want. And through these technological means, we've been learning about China and learning about the world for the Chinese people to get to know the world and for Americans try to know China. So we have much more ways to understand each other now, technological-wise. But do you think we understand each other better now? A little better, but not a lot better. Chinese media uh, is doing a much better job today than Radio Peking did in the 1950s and 60s, because now there are so many more tools and there's so much more room to explore from the Chinese side. And also now, communication is two-way. Then it was one way. So you could listen, but you couldn't communicate with anybody on the other side, unless you had a pen pal. But it took weeks to get and months to get a reply. And so it was very frustrating. And now with things like WeChat, we can instantly communicate 
with anybody, anywhere. And uh, we don't even have to know a language in common because the built-in translation, translation right? software mm-hmm. is so good and getting better every day. Radio Peking is our pre-life. And uh, we did have pen polls. We have, um, you know, listeners writing to us and we wrote back. I think that time, it's we largely depend on shortwave radios. The signal you received is a shortwave Yeah, shortwave radio. But shortwave is dying out. Yeah, it's dying out because of the internet. But the internet, the quality is much higher, the dependability is much more reliable, and it's much easier to do it technologically. For the billions of people who have internet, it's a much better technology, and uh, it's uh, also has the capability of being much more two-way, and that's what communication is all about. Not one-way, but two-way. It's true that new technology is turning the world into a global village. It has brought people in different nations much closer together. But we still don't know each other as well as we had imagined. Harvey recalls what he saw and heard in the United States. I'm still amazed when I talk to people in America that they have this misconception of China. There used to be an advertising campaign in America for a car, for an Oldsmobile, and the General Motors wanted to show that it was uh, hip and modern. So there used to be an advertising slogan in America, this is not your grandfather's Chevrolet. (laughs) And so what they're trying to say is this is a new car, it's hip, it's not fuddy-duddy like we used to be. Uh And so, But people in America still have this fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned image of China. So for Beijing, they have this image of Lots and lots of bicycles, low buildings, old buildings, probably covered in a layer of pollution. And this is not quite the picture. In 1979, China and the United States normalized their diplomatic relations. At the time, Harvey was working as consul to then-U.S. President Jimmy Carter. He witnessed the leaders of the two countries using their wisdom to break the ice and start a new relationship. In 1979, China and the U.S. normalized its relationship and established diplomatic relationships. And you served during that period of time, right? Yes, correct. From when to when to you serve as a consul to Jimmy Carter? I, I was consul to a presidential commission from uh, 1978 to 1980. And so I was present at the time. Witness. You were the yeah, witness. I was a witness to this momentous event. I remember once going to what was going to be the Chinese embassy in Washington. It was before the relationships uh, were established and there was a signing ceremony. And I thought it was uh, very moving. And I didn't know how, but I certainly recognized then that this was a beginning of a new thread of history. Because up until that time, there was so much animosity between China and America. So 
the step that uh, Kissinger and President Nixon took and that uh, Zhou Enlai and Chairman Mao took was a momentous step. And you could know at the time that history was being made. We didn't know where it would lead, but we knew that it was one of those times when history does a flip-flop, when things move in a different direction. And I believe that's still the case now, despite the fact that we have some rough points, uh, bumps in the road. What was your reaction? You happy hearing the news? I wasn't happy or sad, but I realized that it was important to the future of the world because your country had so many people and was uh, such an important player. I recognized at the time that I was a witness to history, that history was being made, and that what started there, we didn't know where that road was going to go, but it was an important road that was going to be and had to be traveled. The thread actually leads to, as I can see, to an article you recently published titled was, um, uh, This Could Be a Sino-American Century. Uh As a witness, as someone still very young, right, working for Jimmy Carter, you realize that it's a new sort of uh, chapter being opened. But now we are in the 21st century, and we all know that China and the U.S. is locked in all sorts of trade frictions and misunderstandings and understandings and negotiations going on still. This could be a Sino-American century, a good one, a promising one, a bad one, an ominous one. What sort of a century laying ahead of us? You know, when I wrote that, uh, President Obama was still president, and so my outlook is different than it is today. I think we were more uh, idealistic then, but I think the premise still remains that if we were able to work together, there's so many things we could conquer and more easily, whether it's things like artificial intelligence whether it's things like space, whether it's things like uh, curing cancer, which is a problem in both of our countries, putting our heads together, our collective heads together, where two heads are better than one and two smart heads are the best. Yeah, there's a lot that we could do. And in that article, I talked about some confidence building measures like a bilateral peace corps where Chinese and U.S. uh, volunteers would work together side by side. I still believe in that concept. I do think it's much more difficult now, but I do believe that unless we can find a way not just to coexist, but to cooperate, the future of the world is bleak. I do feel if we find a way to cooperate, that the future of the world has the potential to be very bright and that the horizons to be virtually unlimited. So the future is still unknown, right? If you were to change it, the article, there would be much to change? I'm not sure I would write it today. Uh, (laughs) No? 
I think I would still write it, but I would probably be a little more circumspect about it because it's going to be more difficult to do. But the necessity is greater now. So actually, if I were writing the article again, I'd say, we have to do these things, but we have to work harder to get them done because now there's uh, something that's separating us and that the space between us is wider and more difficult. Yes, compared with three years ago, the relationship is only a little better and is on the brink of changing, whether for the worse or for the better. Some are predicting that a war between the world's two biggest economies is unavoidable, and there is historical precedence to back up that view. Both Harvey and I agree that we should strive to work on making the two countries partners instead of rivals again. It troubles me that now the relations between America and China are not the best, and we really need to uh, improve them. And uh, it reminds me of a, a story that Albert Einstein was once asked what World War Three uh, weapons were going to look like. And he said, mm-hmm. I don't know. And mm-hmm. he said, but I do know mm-hmm. that the weapons that will be used in World War Four will be sticks and stones. So his point is that if we have another major war, we're not going to survive it. Mm. And so for the good of humanity, uh, no matter where on the earth that it is, we need to find a way to live together. And so I always like to use the term frenemies. China and U.S., we're frenemies. But we should try to put the emphasis not as it is today, on the latter part, but on the friend part. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just so important that we do that. And a large part of that is getting to know each other better as people and not as them or some faceless group of people. Uh, In American history, we've treated Asians and Chinese people extremely poorly, So we had had a tendency to do this and to be racist. Not only we only think of black people, but we've been very racist with the Chinese people. How are you going to convince those people who are stubborn in saying, yeah, there's an old saying that we can bring horses to the river, but we cannot make them drink. But then our job, first job, is to bring people to the river, right? Tell them there's a big river of clean water, pure water, an unpolluted one. And then how do we make them drink? Well, I think uh, you as a person who is prominent at CRI is doing that because CRI is introducing the Chinese culture to the world, not only the political dimension, that's only a part of it, but the life dimension and talking about how life in China really is. While you served as um, vice president of ABC, did you achieve any trying to narrow the gap? Did you organize uh, or did you tell your staff to go to the Chinese community to learn about Chinese people, at least Chinese Americans living there, how they live, you know, what customs and everything. So do you have such sort of um, clear instructions to your staff in order to target 
in order for Chinese Americans to receive better the signals that your media, ABC, was sending out? I think uh, we did it in several ways. For the kind of community outreach, that's really a matter of the local stations, not the television network, which is the national. But we still did many things. So we did it as an American media, actually, by having some anchor people who were Chinese-American, Asian-American reporters who had this heritage. We tried to adhere to the BBC definition of what good media is. And that definition has three components to educate, entertain, and inform. So it's rare that media can meet all three, but that's our ideal goal. And we tried to do that both on a domestic and an international level. And I remember that one of our other anchors who did a long-running series called Nightline, Ted Koppel, did a very extensive uh, interview series and Overlook series, a documentary, I think of uh, four or five parts around the time of the 2008 Olympics, all about China. And I have the DVDs of that uh, and keep that and treasure it, actually, because it was a very comprehensive look for Americans at how China was at that pivotal time in China's history. According to the BBC standard of good journalism, like you said, to educate and to entertain and to inform, do you think your Chinese colleagues or people who work with you are doing good enough? No, you can never do enough because you always have to keep trying because uh, by definition, the ideal is never achievable but you have to keep striving for it. So we need to make more efforts to reach out to um, different communities and to other sides where there are other sides. Because China is so important in the world now, there's more that we can do. I'm very happy that uh, CNN, for example, uh, has a dedicated show dealing with uh, Sino-US relations. I wish we had more of this kind of thing. What is stopping us to understand so much better? With technology improvement, with availability of all the technologies, all the means, but if the willingness to communicate was not there, because we've been through Cold War, we have to admit it. But the Cold War, is it still existing? Or it has transformed to a stage of invisible Cold War? We have ideological, preoccupied sort of a perception of each other. Can we break this invisible wall so that we can sit down like you? If I'm asking you to represent your people, your government and your country and me on my side is China, right? Our people. And we are now, we become friends, right? right? And then we work for each other. But how the greater, you know, society, the people and especially politicians, who are controlling and maneuvering things, how can they come closer together? What is your take? My take is that in our world, some people like to build walls and others like to build bridges. And there's too much wall building and not enough bridge building. And so I believe that China is making a good faith effort to build bridges I don't think America is uh, concentrating on building bridges at the moment, but I think it's very important because we are the two most 
powerful countries in the world. We mm-hmm. have to learn not only to get along, but to know each other. Because if we don't know each other, if we don't put a human face on the other side, let's call it the other side. It shouldn't be the other side. It should be us, not them. But we need to put a human face and have human relationships with people with whom we may have some disagreements because then we can work them out. But if it's us versus them, uh, it's almost a recipe for disaster. Based on his personal experience, Harvey said person-to-person exchange between the two countries is what needs the most work. He believes the best way to get to know a country and its people is to go there and see it with your own eyes. For example, I just came back from Harbin mm-hmm. and uh, resisted going there because the temperature is so cold. But after seeing all the ice and snow sculptures, uh, I would go back tomorrow in spite of the fact that it was so cold. I think the one thing that has to be done is for people to go to the other place and to really explore it and get a feel for it. Uh, You could read all the books in the world, all the newspapers, watch all the media, but you cannot make a connection with it and with people unless you're actually there on the ground. So I think people have to go and uh, see what other cultures are like. So there's a lot we can do. We talked about WeChat. So WeChat, I believe, is one of the pieces of the puzzle that we could take WeChat and use it with children even, children who are six or seven years old and who don't need to speak a common language. They just need to know how to use the translation software. And so if they do that, they can get a good appreciation for each other's culture and maybe meet their friend on the other side. And maybe their families could travel to uh, meet each other in both places. I think that's what we need. We need a commitment to people to people. We need to build more bridges to each other, um, both on a human level, on a media level, and on every level, actually, because we're going to need to do that. Harvey and I are both amazed at how effortlessly people can come together out of sheer willingness and a desire to communicate. As testament to that, we friended each other on WeChat after the show, expressing our belief that the more people know and understand each other, the more they have the same desire or willingness to come closer to each other. With regard to countries, it's the same. I'm Man Ling. Thank you for listening to our program. And if you liked it and want to listen to us again, just find us on our website, chinaplus.cri.cn and Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.